Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'd like to introduce Rachel Heslin. Rachel is the founder of The Fullness of Your Power and the author of Navigating Life, Eight Different Strategies to Guide Your Way and Rituals of Release, How to Make Room for Your New Life. She helps people tap into their deeper purpose and higher aspirations. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hello there, Jessica. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, same. So let's start off by talking about the things that hold us back, like guilt and and fear and shame. I know you do a lot of work around letting those go. One of my most basic premises is that each of us is born into the world absolutely perfect. We're full of curiosity and wonder and delight in the world, and we want to explore and play and be and express ourselves. And that, at our core, is who we are. But then we need to interact with other people. And when we start interacting with others, we learn things. Human beings are social creatures. We are dependent on other people in order to survive. Therefore, on some level, we're actually hardwired to try to play nicely with others. Mm -hmm. I mean, this goes back, I mean, especially when we're really little, we are literally dependent on our parents. If they decide they don't want us or if they don't take care of us, we could die. And that is a very important, uh, something to understand the fact that it does go back that far. We have people as adults who feel ashamed about being people pleasers and why can't I stand up for myself? But it does go all the way back to that childhood of wanting to please mommy and daddy or your parents, Mm -hmm. or whoever is supposed to be taking care of you. Mm -hmm. Being human is inherently messy. So you can have the most amazing parents in the entire world who are nurturing and supportive and encourage you, and they're still human. They're going to have days where they're not everything that they want to be. And when you are little, you don't have the frame of reference to understand that it's not necessarily about you. Right. Like maybe, maybe mom has an argument with a coworker and she comes home and she snaps at you to be quiet because you're getting on her nerves. Well, if you're four years old, you're not going to say, oh, mom must have had a bad day at work. What the four-year-old thinks is, I need to be quiet or else people are going to be mad at me. There's something wrong with me if I'm loud. Mm. Now, something that makes it even more interesting from a psychological development perspective is that the human brain physiologically changes over the course of our lives. And it is, there are distinct stages of development where the brain itself changes how it's put together. 
One of these brain shifts happens by the age of three. There's another one that happens around the age of seven. And then over the course of adolescence, as the prefrontal cortex develops, there is a third brain transformation where the neurons physiologically change from what they were to what they become. Now, the reason this makes it so interesting is that anything that you learn, regardless of whether or not it's actually true, if you learn it prior to one of those brain shifts, it gets locked in and feels like truth. So you can be a full-grown adult, you've got your own job, you have your own issues with your coworkers, you're not going to automatically think, hey, you know, when I was four years old and mom came home and she yelled at me to be quiet, maybe she had a bad day. That doesn't happen. We don't realize that. And that is why, even as adults, we just recognize the feeling, oh, I shouldn't be loud because it makes people mad. Yeah. And it's really a matter of going back to that time and uh, really acknowledging that when we were children, we just didn't have that greater perspective to understand what was going on. And instead, we internalized different messages that we still carry today. Exactly. And that one of the things when I work with clients that I really emphasize is awareness of what are your basic assumptions and then looking at them. Mm-hmm. When you think, okay, I need to be quiet because it'll make people upset. Look at that. It's like, hold on a second. There's the intellectual and there's also the feeling. And I think it's important to recognize that we get different information from different sources. And I'm talking about, I'm I'm even talking about strictly internal sources. They've discovered that There are multiple neural networks inside the body. We've got the brain that's up in the skull, and that's really good for analyzing and asking questions and being the observer and looking at things. But there's also a second neural network that is located physically around the heart And that seems to be connected with your deeper values. And there's a third cluster of neurons that's located around the solar plexus, around the gut area. And that is related to understanding or recognizing perceptions of safety. Mm -hmm. When you talk about a gut feeling, that is information you are receiving from it's kind of like your third brain that's in in your gut literally yeah i think it's important to point out that i use the word perceptions of safety because there's part of your brain that keeps track of perceived cause and effect mm-hmm. and it stores that information so that when you see a situation that reminds you of something that has happened before, 
that triggers the gut response that says, oh, when I did this before, these were the consequences. But this, too, goes back to what I was talking about when you're a child. What you think is cause and effect may not actually be what the cause and effect really are. Right. So that's why it's so important that when you get a gut reaction to something, that doesn't mean don't do it, but it does mean, hold on a second, we need to step back. We need to take a look and really assess the situation, identify what am I reacting to, is there true danger here, or is it a reflection of something that happened before that may not be applicable to this situation? Mm, I see. Like really doing that self-reflection and understanding why we feel a certain way. I mean, I can imagine that a lot of us will feel different feelings and emotions for no conceivable reasonable purpose or there's it it seems almost random how we feel yeah and it, it, it's back to the connections that are made in our subconscious mind that we may not be reacting to the current situation but there is some element about it that reminds us of something else and it's that something else that's bringing up the feelings mm -hmm. like being triggered by something yeah now the reason i'm going into the this developmental and the physiological psychology of why these things happened is you mentioned that you're really interested in things such as guilt and shame and trying to forgive yourself. And it's important to know that a lot of what happens is just part of growing up and just part of being human. So while there may be guilt and shame, you don't want to compound it by thinking, I should not be the way that I am. Mm -hmm. You're human. These things are going to happen. Therefore, things such as guilt, shame, regret, fear, grief, these are simply indications of something inside yourself that needs to be acknowledged and usually needs to be loved. How do we let go of these, like, shoulds? The first thing, like I said with clients, the first thing I do is you need to recognize that they even exist. I mean, how many times do we go through life trying to make decisions and we just automatically start going into, well, I should do this, I should do that. How do you recognize whether, like, what, what is that value of should? There are even different layers of shoulds. I break shoulds into like internally motivated and externally motivated shoulds. Internal shoulds generally have to do with who we think we should be. I mean, for myself, being a mother is a very large part of my, my personal identity as a person. 
And for a long time, I felt like I should be a better mother. The way that I deal with those type of shoulds where there is a should, but that should is actually congruent with who I want to be as a human being, it's necessary to change the phrasing of it from should to something like want. One of the sneaky things about shoulds, because so many people say, well, you shouldn't say should or it's a bad thing, but they don't talk about why it's, it can be such a problem. The reason that shoulds are a problem from a psychological level is because whenever you use a sentence with the word should, you are actually reinforcing its opposite. As in, when you say, I should be, say in my case, a better mother, the end of the sentence has an invisible or an audible, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. So whenever you say it should be this way, there's an hanging on the end of that is, but it's not. And we don't want that to be the end of the sentence. What we want is to open up the energy and open up the path to change into what you do want. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really like doing with these internally motivated shoulds is if there is something you really want to become, you want to be better at, you say that. It's, I am striving to become more of this type of a person. I am working to be kinder. I am working to be more focused. I am striving towards becoming the person I want to be. And when you shift the I should be to, I am moving in that direction, can you feel the shift in energy that it actually pulls you towards becoming the person you want to be? Hmm. What about the external shoulds? The, the external shoulds, I generally categorize as what it is we think we should be doing, as in actions. Hmm. This really comes into play when you have been taught to be practical or responsible or to do a certain type of thing in order to make your parents happy, in order to pay the bills, in order to live up to anything that you think is a should. Now, the way to determine whether or not a choice is your your path, or it's just a should, is how much of a story you need to tell yourself in order to convince that, yes, this is what you should be doing. And I bring that up because sometimes there are things that we want to do and we try to talk ourselves out of them, out of fear. They're saying, well, I shouldn't do that because... So if you have a choice between, say, doing something artistic or 
getting a job as an accountant or something like that when your father was an accountant and you think that's what you're supposed to do. If you keep telling yourself, well, I really should do this, and you keep repeating that, generally, that's not your path. However, if you find yourself trying to say, well, yes, I really want to accept this unpaid internship at this place I really love, but I shouldn't do it because I don't know how I'll pay my bills or this or that, the other, or it's impractical. Those types of shoulds or the should nots indicate that this thing that you want is your path. So I just want to tie this back also into the shame part and the guilt part because a lot of people feel guilty about following their heart's desires. Mm-hmm. If they're, they may feel like they're letting someone down or they're not being who they should be. And you, you can hear my quotation marks around those phrases. Mm-hmm. I believe that each of us is here on this planet in order to make a unique contribution to the world. And for a lot of people, Certain types of jobs, whether it's becoming the accountant or the lawyer or firefighter or teacher, for some people, these are perfect and that is their contribution. But if you are going into these vocations because you think you should rather than it's what you are drawn to do, then you're actually robbing the world of your unique contribution. Mm -hmm. We each have our own thread to weave into the tapestry of human experience. We're all in this together. And whether this also applies to things such as activism, The world right now is a really chaotic place. It is insane. I have to speak to this because, I mean, I live in Southern California and I've been watching uh, the, the local news reports because we're relatively near a fire and have to make sure we don't have to evacuate. This is part of our lives this year, and we need to acknowledge that there is a lot going on in the world, and a lot of us, I'm speaking as a a value of one, I have had to deal with this, members of my family, my friends, people I've spoken to, we feel guilty because there are so many things out there and we feel like we should be trying to do everything and it is not possible. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is not only is it not possible, but it is not necessary. The way we release the guilt of feeling like we have to do everything is to listen to your heart. What is it that you are called to do? What makes your heart sing? One of my favorite quotes is by Howard Thurman. 
He says, do not ask what the world needs, but ask what makes us come alive. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to guilt. People feel guilty about being happy when the world is literally burning down around our ears. But the truth is that happiness and sadness coexist. Joy and sorrow are so closely entwined. You can't have the fullness of one without the other. You need to have love in your life. You need to express love and kindness. So what are some practical steps to connecting with a place in our heart rather than, you know, the messages that we're being told or a sense that there's just so many things to do and not enough time to do them? I have become a fan of rituals. Mm -hmm. And rituals don't need to be anything fancy. In, In the simplest terms, I consider a ritual needs to have four parts. The first part is you need to set aside a space which is sacred. And it doesn't even have to be a physical space. It can be 10 minutes in the day that you set aside and tell yourself, this is going to be the time when I don't look at my phone, I don't talk to anybody, I just sit or walk or I set aside this space in time in order to focus on this thing. Mm -hmm. The second aspect of ritual is intention. What is it that you want to come out of this ritual having accomplished? Is it greater clarity? Is it inspiration? Is it simply Letting go. How do you want to feel after the ritual? The third aspect of the ritual, something physical and in some way tangible. It is this action that changes an intention or an idea into a ritual. And it solidifies the intention so that you can embody it more thoroughly. Mm -hmm. This can be anything from writing out your thoughts, journaling. It could be dance. It could be singing. It could be going for a walk and very deliberately looking for and noticing physical aspects of the world around you. What is the color of, how many different shades of brown is that tree bark? How many shades of blue is the sky? 
How many different sounds can you hear? Express gratitude for each of them and the ability to notice. Mm -hmm. But have some sort of physical activity that helps you embody the intention. Yeah. Fourth part of a ritual is the deliberate closing and expressing gratitude for this opportunity to become more in tune with yourself and preparing yourself to re-enter the outside world. And the reason that this fourth part is crucial is because the world is crazy. You need to create a space for yourself where your inner child, where your heart knows that it can be safe and that it can reveal itself. And so you keep it safe by wrapping it up again and expressing gratitude before re-entering the chaos of the world. Hmm. How do we connect with like our truer, deeper self if we feel like our life is kind of lacking that that meaning or that sense of purpose. Notice what you are drawn to. One of the ones that I think is kind of fun that I noticed with myself is look at the people you're really attracted to, whether it can be celebrities or somebody you know or see on TV. If there's something about someone that just fascinates you and you're, you're drawn to them. Usually, that means that there is some aspect, some quality that they have that wants to be pulled out of yourself. Mm. I am very much a process-oriented person. I like thinking in terms of qualities and actions. And from when you align those, you have directions and the goals and the objectives, they become guideposts and what you end up accomplishing organically unfolds. If you're looking for some sort of purpose in life and try to figure out what is your meaning, I've done a whole lot of really weird things in my life. I mean, I, when I got out of college, I did temp work, which I worked for uh, Kelly Temporary Agencies. And I did a whole bunch of stuff, ranging from uh, secretarial work to I cut up fruit for demonstrations of a juicer to I worked for a visual effects firm where the, my first day on the job, they set fire to a body in the parking lot. I did a lot of different things. I ended up doing public relations for a rock band. I did background in movies and TV shows where I was the, the people you see wandering around, the extras in the background. I've done website design. I've done all sorts of different things. And throughout this, I always loved people. The common thread 
whether it was with my coworkers or wherever I was, I was fascinated by why, why do people do the things that they do? How do things work? How can people be in the same situation and have very different interpretations of it? Mm-hmm. And eventually, even though I've been studying psychology for decades, it's only the past handful of years that I realized that it was my calling. Mm. I had this thing in my head that uh, for some reason, if something came easily to me and I enjoyed it, then obviously I shouldn't be making money at it because work is supposed to be hard. Mm. Well, that didn't work out so well. But what I did is I paid attention to what does come easily. What do I love to do? And you may not know what your purpose is other than in hindsight. Yeah. If you tap into your heart's intuition, I had mentioned that the the neural system that's located around the heart is connected with your deeper values. If you start to pay attention to your body and you're in a situation and you have a choice between two things and ask which of these feels lighter in weight and more expansive and which of these feels heavy and more constricting. Move towards the one that's more expansive. Hmm. I mean, I'm actually reminded of uh, Martin Luther King's saying, you don't need to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. The more present you become in each moment, the easier it becomes to know what your next step is. And the more immersed you are in your experience of your life and paying attention, where, I, where am I right now in this moment? Mm-hmm. The less your brain is going to be worrying about, well, is this the right thing to do? I don't feel more. Learn how to become present. Because when you notice things, when I was talking about rituals, and I mentioned becoming physically aware of where you are, they've actually discovered doing brain scans that when you pay attention to two or more physical sensations at the same time, it triggers a brain shift, which is similar to meditation. It clears out the chatter, the brain chatter, the what do I do about this and maybe I should have and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all that buzz in there. It re-centers you and brings you back to now. Hmm. The more deeply you are experiencing your life right now, 
you don't have time to worry about if you're doing the right thing because you are doing, you are being, you are living. Yeah, and that can really help to quiet the the mind chatter and the maybe negative stories that keep replaying in our minds. So you you talked about self-forgiveness through understanding that we're all human and that we all feel these kinds of different feelings. And how else can we forgive? I mean, sometimes different traumas or different stories we tell ourselves will continue to repeat themselves whether or not we understand like on a mental level that wasn't our fault or or things like that but how do we really really fully integrate that into our lives oh you you've actually tapped you've tapped into the answer of that by the way you phrased that the fact that there seem to be recurring patterns and that it's not our fault. And I want to talk about both of those. Well, actually, first, I want to talk about the, there's a difference between forgiving other people versus forgiving yourself. When you forgive other people, what you are doing is you are disconnecting your energy from their energy. You are saying, I am letting go of your ability to hijack my emotions. Mm-hmm. And you're releasing them. You're not saying that whatever they did is okay. Because if it were okay, then there wouldn't be anything to forgive. But what you're saying is, not my problem, that's you. Mm-hmm. And it's reclaiming that part of your power. Now, when it comes to forgiving yourself, there needs to be a change. For myself, I know the hardest things to forgive in myself are when I feel like I should have known better. Where I look back, it's like, ah, I second-guessed myself. I thought about this, but I did something better. I shouldn't have gotten in that situation. I should have done this, da-da-da-da. It is therefore important as part of the forgiveness, yes, understanding, sending your younger self love, give your younger self a hug, and then set an intention to do things differently in the future. So that addresses what you were saying about going into finding yourself in the same cycles Mm. need to become aware of the cycles and set an intention to do things differently Mm -hmm. which brings us to what is it that you do differently and that goes back to what you were saying where it wasn't your fault now here it is important important to differentiate between fault and blame versus identifying contributing factors. When you talk about situations in terms of fault or blame, the purpose is to push away. I don't want to feel that it was somebody else's fault 
it kind of implies that it just happened or people just are the way that they are and you're either a good person or a bad person or you deserved to have it happen. All of these perspectives are based on the idea that people are static, that people are almost like puppets. But the truth is that people, human beings, are alive. We can learn. We can grow and evolve and change. It's just sometimes really difficult to do so if we don't realize what it is that we're doing or why we're doing it or the fact that we do have choices. Mm -hmm. That is why I prefer to look at situations in terms of contributing factors. I know a lot of women who get into relationships that may not be healthy. It is not their fault that they end up with people who take advantage of them. Because fault seems to mean that they should have known better. And again, that should have known is in big quotation marks. Or that they somehow deserve having bad relationships. And neither of those are true. At the same time, there are certain things that they do which contribute to them moving into those sorts of relationships. Right. One example is giving people too much benefit of the doubt. I know I, when I was younger, I would get into relationships and because uh, it's like because of my psychological background, I knew that my partner was trying the best that he could. And even though he would do things that ended up hurting me, I would just let it go and I was incredibly forgiving. But it also meant that I wasn't happy. Yeah. I was contributing to that situation by not being honest, by not saying, Hey, it may not be your intention, but this thing you did right here really hurt me. And I would like that I, I would like at least an acknowledgement of that. And can we work to change this? Can we deal with what happened? Hmm. That's an example of how someone can remain true to their sense of compassion, but also be true to themselves. People talk a lot about boundaries. I personally don't like the term boundary just because when I start putting walls between me and the rest of the world, it cuts off my energy and it makes me feel constricted. Yeah. I prefer to look at terms, look at it in terms of honesty. Be honest with myself. And one of the things that I had to work through was I was, I was afraid of upsetting people if I told them that I was upset. Mm -hmm. 
And I was afraid of what the consequences would be. Yeah. Now, I found out later that when I was four years old, I found that my mother told me the story long after when I was an adult and I had no memory of it. But something had happened when a man that I, relative I had loved and trusted, happened to have an allergic reaction to, to something and got really upset and, and, got really, and lashed out at me and I was terrified. And I, even though I wasn't physically hurt, that feeling I reacted to, I had this internalized fear that it would be awful if I upset a man. Mm-hmm. Now, however many decades later, as an adult, and I was looking at it, and I was practicing being honest, and I was practicing looking at my fears. And I, real, I, just, I realized I had this fear. I developed that awareness that I had a fear that if I stood up for myself, that something awful would happen. Mm-hmm. And I decided to take the risk and say, you know, I'm going to try it anyway. I'm going to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And what happened there were some sometimes when it happened, the other person did get upset, but they didn't hit me. I wasn't hurt. Nothing is like, oh, I was okay. Mm-hmm. And the more I did it, the more, the stronger I became. And it no longer, it no longer felt like a conflict. I didn't have to gird myself for battle. It just became a conversation. Hmm. What I discovered is that the more confident I became in myself, the, not only was it easier for me to talk about how I felt and what I wanted from a relationship, but because of my own energy being more confident, my partner's energy became more relaxed. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was weird, but it was the happier I was and the more at ease I became with expressing my feelings and what I liked and what I didn't like. And the more I learned how to listen to him so that I could model caring about what he wanted and caring about what he liked and going in with an expectation that it would be a conversation, not a conflict, but equal listening and communication and sharing and modeling that respect and expecting that respect in return, the relationship itself became healthy. Mm-hmm. How did you cultivate that awareness of your fears or your kind of beliefs around certain things? Well, what you mentioned what, uh, earlier in this conversation, when you were saying that sometimes 
you're reacting a certain way and it seems really overblown mm -hmm. or you just notice I'm getting really upset here. Mm -hmm. I'm just standing. I haven't even said anything. It's just words. Why am I so upset? Mm -hmm. For myself, I really benefit from journaling. When I write things down, physically, pen and paper in a notebook, there's something about the combination of the kinesthetic feel of moving, writing on paper that activates certain areas of my brain, combined with writing out my thoughts that helps me organize and pull them out and look at them. And sometimes what I'll be doing is I'll be writing something out. And I love questions. I'll just start writing out the questions. What am I afraid will happen? What, what, the first question, what am I afraid of? And then see what comes up and then drill down. If I do this, what am I afraid will happen? How do I think the other person might react? What would this mean? What am I afraid this might mean about me, about who I am? And when I start writing out these questions, I would find sometimes answers would come up like actual words and it would and it's like having a conversation with myself or my guidance and the answers i'm afraid he'll be upset what would happen if he becomes upset and then go from there sometimes i don't necessarily have actual words but I can feel something loosen inside me. Hmm. And at that point, I realize the question that I've asked is the one that unlocks what was stuck. Am I afraid that I will not survive? Hmm. And sometimes that comes up as yes. Yeah. Is it true? that I will not survive. And when I ask that question, I find there's a space because that part of me that has been trying so hard to protect me, because that is what the fear has been doing. It's not trying to make you miserable. It's trying to protect you from what it is afraid might happen. But when you ask it, is it true? that I will not survive, you can almost feel like a, huh, hold on, I have to go think about this one. <laughs> yeah. And when that happens, I felt this cascade inside me of almost like little effervescent pops of things that had been knotted inside my psyche, inside my heart, loosening up. And releasing. Hmm. So it's really kind of 
asking questions that guides you to a place of greater understanding and really addressing the root of the fears and communicating with the ego in a sense. Oh, yes. I, I say that uh, most people are run by committee because there are so many different so many different aspects of yourself. You think about over the years, you've got the part of you that wants to play. You have the part of you that wants to make your parents happy. You have the part of you that's afraid of bugs. You have the part of you that is all of these different aspects, and they're all different ages, and they all come together to make you you. Mm. Uh, when my, as a slight tangent, uh, my father is a clinical psychologist, and he used to work with a lot of people who had been diagnosed with multiple personality disorder, where back in the, I think in the, the 70s, Sybil was the big poster child for MPD, where people, it was a dissociative disorder, where people became different people. And they had these very strong personalities that in different situations would show up and all of a sudden they would be this different person. And it's generally a a response to trauma that they kind of divided into different aspects to protect different parts of themselves and make it easier for them to deal with the extreme trauma that they had experienced. Mm -hmm. Most therapists tried to integrate the different parts into a single person. Well, my father's approach was a little bit difficult, different in that his goal was not to make them normal. His goal for most of his clients is to help them interact appropriately in society and have happy and fulfilling lives. Therefore, instead of trying to squish them all into a single person, what he would do is get them working as a team, the different aspects, the different multiple personalities, get them work as a team so that the one that's really good at taking care of the day-to-day things would coordinate with the one who just wants to play and be a little kid so that you would schedule time to be a kid and still get the other stuff done. That's kind of what all of us do on a regular basis in order to interact with the world, interface with the world, because the world puts so many demands on it. Different aspects of ourselves are better able to work with different parts of the world. See, we talk about shoulds. I think I I mentioned we're hardwired to want to play nicely with others. That is a really good skill to have. The problem is when we think that we are defined by other people's expectations of us. For example, if you work in an office, there are certain expectations of you need to fulfill the requirements of the position. Now, there is a difference between bringing out and emphasizing those parts of yourself which are capable of fulfilling the requirements of the job. That is a skill. 
You could say, yes, I can do this, I can do this, I can do that. There's a difference between that and thinking that you have to be your job yeah. or that, that is the own, those are the only parts of you that matter. You don't want to cut off all the other aspects of you. You want to nurture your variety, your humanity, all of your depth and textures and flavors and all the fun little bumpy bits that make you you. And then when you're hanging out with your friends, you bring out those aspects of yourself that really enjoy being with these friends. It doesn't mean that you're changing who you are in order to quote-unquote fit in, but what you're doing is you're adapting those parts of yourself and you're shining a spotlight on those parts of yourself that really create a synergy with this friend group. And that bring that contribute to it. And when you're with a different group of friends that has different interests, you just bring out another part of yourself that contributes to that friend group. And when you're with yourself, really nurture your heart, love yourself, make sure that you contribute to yourself. Listen to yourself, honor your body, have fun, and recognize that you did come into this world a beautiful human being. And that part of you is still there and always will be. Yeah, what you're saying is really understand our identity as, as multifaceted and that different parts of us will come out in different places with different people and that our being is it's hard to capture in in like a job or in one relationship or friendship it really is like the entire spectrum and the gamut of who we're interacting with like how we are with ourselves and others and you know what our work is it's it's the whole picture exactly we contain multitudes Mm-hmm. And a, an adjunct to this is that for all that we are multifaceted, there are also a whole bunch of things that are not congruent with who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we nurture all, as we nurture our connection and our awareness with our core so that we recognize all the different ways that who we are loves to manifest itself, we'll also become more attuned to what is not aligned with who we are. And it will become easier to let go of it. That's an entire, that's, I'm going to say an entirely different conversation, but it, does tap back into the awareness and recognizing the fears because sometimes we hold on to things because we're afraid of 
other people's reactions, what might happen if we let go of them. And that's something else that we can learn how to cultivate faith. It's back to that take the first stair step, that, that first step of the staircase. Just take that first step, breathe, <laughs> release. Yeah, I, I differentiate between rejection versus release because rejection is a value judgment that it's bad. And it's not bad. It's just not supporting you right now. Maybe mm -hmm. some other time it either has been or would be useful to you. Maybe it's not for you at all, but somebody else really loves it. Yeah. yeah. So by releasing it, you're letting go of any value judgments and just saying, hey, it's like letting go of a balloon. And maybe somebody else really loves that balloon and they're going to catch it and it will help them soar. Yeah. And you can feel gratitude for being able to let go of it and release that energy into the universe so that you can be more you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing you know, about how we can really align with our authentic true self and through the process of letting go of, you know, guilt and shame and fear and really allowing these emotions to like inform us about ourselves and how we can yeah. cohesively look at our identity and who we are and forgive ourselves, forgive others and really discover things through the process of release so thank you you are very welcome this has been delightful 